Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode on pediatric point-of-care ultrasound, we have pediatric emergency physicians Jason Fisher. It's great to be back. Alyssa Abo. I'm Alyssa Abo. Adam Sivitz. I'm Adam Sivitz. And Alex Arroyo. My name is Alex Arroyo. Dr. Fisher is a pediatric emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, where he runs the only point-of-care ultrasound fellowship in Canada. Dr. Sivitz is the medical director for pediatric emergency medicine at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center Children's Hospital in New Jersey. Dr. Abo is a pediatric emergency physician at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., where she's the Associate Director of Emergency Ultrasound, and Dr. Arroyo is the Director of the Pediatric Emergency Department at the Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, the PEM Ultrasound Director, as well as the Director of Ultrasound Research for Pediatrics. In this episode, a follow-up to episode 18, point-of-care ultrasound pearls and pitfalls, which covered pericardial effusion, pneumothorax, undifferentiated shock, cardiac arrest, and DVT, we bring you four of North America's PEDS point-of-care ultrasound gurus recorded live from Toronto during the first-ever P2 conference, which stands for PEM-POCUS, which stands for Pediatric Emergency Medicine Point-of-Care Ultrasound. The format will be a little bit different in this episode. I'm going to ask each of our P2 gurus to describe a case that illustrates their favorite point-of-care ultrasound application, why they think it's useful, how it improves patient care, a step-by-step description of how to perform the application, the pearls and pitfalls of the application, and a bit about what the literature says about the application. Now, the POCUS applications that we'll talk about in this episode do require some practice and expertise to get to the point where you should use the application on your patients. If you don't have any ultrasound training, there's some great basic courses out there, including one that my buddies Greg and Steve run called the Eddie Course in Canada. I have no financial connection with these guys, but they are amazing educators. Once you've had some basic ultrasound training, then what we suggest is that after listening to the podcast, review the blog post written summary where we'll have some images, videos, and step-by-step procedures of each application, and then ask the person in your department who's the most proficient in ultrasound to show you the application on a real patient. There's also lots of advanced ultrasound courses out there where you can practice on a simulation model for invasive procedures. Then it's a matter of pulling out that probe on every patient that you think might benefit from the POCUS application and practicing. It might take five scans, it might take a hundred, but eventually you'll get to the point where it's part of your muscle memory. Then you'll be able to make a significant difference to patient care. So without further ado, let's jump into the first case with Dr. Fisher. Abolishing pain is perhaps the most important thing we can do for our patients in the ED, especially pediatric patients who will likely fear any pain through their whole life more after a horrible, painful ED experience. And for those of us who have broken a bone before, we know that fractures in particular hurt a heck of a lot. We also know that procedural sedation takes a huge amount of time and resource in our EDs. 
With this in mind, let's hear Dr. Fisher's case where POCUS helped him manage the pain of a suffering child. So when I think about cases where point-of-care ultrasound has had the biggest impact, I'm always reminded of a case that happened shortly after I began my PEM fellowship. I trained in emergency medicine, and at the site I trained in Oakland, we had done lots of ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia. So it was just kind of common part of our practice. So I had just started my PEM fellowship, and one day we got a ring down that a four-year-old boy had been left at home unattended, and he had discovered a firecracker in a drawer. And somehow he had lit that firecracker in his hand and, of course, had been badly, badly injured. So the ringdown we got was that this boy was coming in, his hand was mangled, and he was in extreme pain. They hadn't been able to establish an access of any kind, and they had given him four milligrams of IM morphine. And when he arrived to us, he was in extreme pain. We quickly gave him some internasal fentanyl, and then I wheeled in the ultrasound machine and performed a forearm nerve block. And what made this such a positive sentinel event was that this procedure had really not been done in this facility. And within five minutes, the procedure was done. Within 10 minutes, the patient was pain-free. This was a dramatic change from how this patient would have been treated classically. Either the patient would have had procedural sedation with maybe ketamine until he could go to the OR, which turns out to have been six hours, so not very feasible. Or an IV would have been placed and he would have just got continuous morphine. And we all know there are downfalls with just continuous morphine. And ultimately, the pain control would have been quite poor. This case had a profound effect on all the physicians that were there, the orthopedists, the plastic surgeons, the general surgeons that were there for the trauma, our nursing staff, because they really hadn't seen this procedure done and seen it in that emergent setting where it was just so clearly impactful and helped this child out so much. And so I love ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia. I think it is an incredible tool for us to provide pain management, and I just think this case demonstrates it beautifully. Yeah, that's an amazing case, Dr. Fisher. Let's talk a little bit about the actual indications for regional nerve blocks and when you would want to use ultrasound-guided regional nerve blocks. So let's start with the forearm. Sure. Just give, just give me some indications for, you know, this is a great case, but what, in what other situations would you, would you want to consider doing a regional forearm ultrasound-guided nerve block? So there are definite injuries and illnesses or pathologies that have never lent themselves to our traditional pain management tools. So, for example, boxers fractures often hard to provide good pain management with what we've done typically. You know, multiple lacerations, burns. I'm reminded of a case of a six-month-old who dipped his hand into some hot tea and came in and we did a forearm nerve block and he was essentially, again, pain-free for a prolonged period of time until some other medications like the NSAIDs really started to work and until we could get his hand debrided and, and bandaged. So I think about any of those, anything where it's challenging to provide enough local anesthesia or any situation where you're giving, you know, analgesia that's just not going to cut it. Okay, so a significant injury of the hand, hand yep. but not the, not the forearm itself. Right, right. So it's important with all regional anesthesia to recognize where the distributions of those nerves are. So when you do a forearm nerve block, you're essentially getting the hand. 
And this is important in pediatrics because a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, oh, I can get the distal forearm. Uh, but you can't. To get the distal forearm, you really need to be able to get that innervation of the periosteum. So you need to be above the elbow. And so, yeah, I think, you know, you can use regional anesthesia and especially ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia to be much more successful anywhere in the body for really any indication of pain management. You've just really got to know the distribution of those nerves. Okay, so the forearm is a good place to start for people who don't know how to do nerve blocks because there's not too much you can hit that would cause any major complications. Could you first just run through for us the step-by-step procedure of how you would do a forearm nerve block ultrasound guided, um, and then tell us some of the pearls and pitfalls with the procedure? Absolutely. So probably more so in pediatric emergency medicine, you want to start by um, taking advantage of adjuncts. And so as soon as you see a potential indication for a forearm nerve block, what I like to do is put some kind of anesthesia agent on the skin because, you know, kids hate to feel that poke of the needle. So if you can do that right away, that's kind of the first step. What's your numbing agent of choice? So I think it's really whatever you've got in your emergency department. If you've got a topical cream, that works. Sometimes that takes a little longer. I think the, the cold sprays that a lot of departments have now to do IVs, also very helpful distraction is helpful. And giving an adjunctive drug internasally can be a huge, huge help. So a child comes in, they're in a lot of pain. You know it's going to take five minutes for the nerve block to work, five minutes for you to do it. Give them some internasal fentanyl. A child is incredibly anxious about needles or just anxious about being in the hospital. Give a little bit of midazolam. And then we've been using a lot more internasal ketamine because in small kids with high concentrated ketamine, that works really well too. It's really just a pain agent as opposed to a dissociative. There's a great resource online called intranasal.net. It talks about all the drug dosing, so you should check it out. And um, if you think about the IV use of a drug and then translate its bioavailability when you use the atomizer, that's kind of a helpful way to think about it. So I give one milligram per kilogram to dissociate a child with ketamine. If I want to offer pain control, that means it's 0.3 to 0.5, okay? And so if the bioavailability of ketamine is 10%, that means that I've got to give about 30 to 50 per kilo, which seems like a huge, huge dose. But when you're only getting 10% of that, it translates quickly. So don't trust my math on that. Visit intranasal.net and work it out and make sure that you're, you're using the appropriate dose. And I think a lot of people like us that are still trying to use this technology of the atomizer with ketamine are still trying to sort out what is the best dosing regimen and is there a way to mix a couple drugs safely and more effectively. For example, if I give a little fentanyl, should I also be giving some ketamine? And I think a lot of us feel that that's the best route to go. So once you've given your local anesthetic, either a cream or a spray to the skin or intranasal ketamine plus minus fentanyl, your anxiolytic like midazolam intranasally, then you're ready to look at the anatomy. Next, Dr. Fisher is going to talk about identifying the nerves. And then what you're going to do is you're going to identify your anatomy. So in the case of the forearm, you're thinking about the radial nerve, which lies on the radial side of the radial neurovascular bundle. And you can identify that by looking at the wrist and finding the radial artery and then tracing it back to the mid-forearm. If you move across the arm, you find then the median nerve. It kind of lives by itself in the middle of the forearm. 
And then on the ulnar side, of course, is the ulnar nerve. And it lives on the ulnar side of that ulnar neurovascular bundle. And again, you can identify it by identifying the ulnar artery at the wrist and then moving back to the forearm. On the blog post, we'll have specific step-by-step instructions on how to do this with some images to show you exactly how to identify the nerves. And we choose the forearm because it's an area that's not very sensitive. It's an area where there's no other structures for us to hit. And it gives us a little bit of room to work. So I understand there's some local and systemic complications with all nerve blocks. For the forearm nerve block, what are some of the local and systemic complications? Yeah, so I think most complications arise from when you lose your needle tip. So really the next step in doing an ultrasound-guided, any kind of ultrasound-guided nerve block, is to follow in plane your needle and keep watch on your needle tip. Because when it gets away on you is when you get into trouble, either by damaging other structures or by getting into the vessel and injecting. And those are really your complications you worry about. Okay, similar to a central line. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you just want to bathe that nerve. But by using ultrasound guidance, you can decrease the amount of anesthesia agent that you need. So you're not worrying about that local toxicity by delivering too much agent. And you're not worried about injecting a whole boatload of bupivacaine into a vessel and causing a seizure. Because you're following that needle tip, you're using small amounts. And then to have a little bit of additional safety, in pediatrics, what we suggest is Lido with Epi because there you get some of the benefits of the epi kind of giving you a longer duration. But we know Lido with epi is essentially a safe agent. It's not 100% safe. You've got to know what you're doing, but it's a lot safer than using bupivacaine or some other potential agents. Okay, great. So it sounds intuitive that doing nerve block ultrasound guided of the forearm or the femoral, for example, would be better for pain control, would last longer, would be less painful for the child to start with, and may even have less complications than, say, IV morphine. Is there any literature out there to support the use of ultrasound-guided nerve blocks compared to usual pain management? So when you look for this literature, you've got to hunt around a little bit because you're going to find a little bit of pediatric emergency medicine literature, some emergency medicine literature, and then anesthesia literature that's specific to pediatrics. And what they show us is that you're going to increase your success. So all of us as emergency physicians, as one of the sets of procedures that we do, are regional anesthesia, right? That's just something we're all supposed to be trained to do. But if you poll 10 physicians how many have done a nerve block, non-ultrasound guided, in the last five years, very few have. Because it's just a really low success rate using landmarks. And when you add ultrasound, you just take all the guessing away. And so really, if you think about it, you're building on top of a, of a prior skill set. And then the literature shows us what literature we have, that we can decrease ED length of stay. We can decrease resources because often nerve blocks are taking the place of procedural sedation. And then we have all this body of anesthesia literature that, that speaks to the safety. One of the criticisms of doing nerve blocks is that you might miss a compartment syndrome in a kid, say, with a fracture, a distal compartment syndrome. What does the literature have to say about your chances of actually missing something like that? Yeah, so to my knowledge, there's no literature to support that kind of uh, claim. And in fact, there's a few cases, and I think more and more evidence all the time, that it's in fact not true, that if there was a compartment syndrome, that you would be able to pick it up. The symptoms of that compartment syndrome would overcome any regional anesthesia. 
Now, having said that, there is still a role for being thoughtful about how long you want that nerve block to be present. Do you want sustained pain control? Do you want short duration pain control just to stop that pain cycle? And you know, you can select your agent based on what you're trying to get out of it. Can't you feel it in your bones? A change is coming on from every walk of life. People are seeing the light. Next up, we're going to be talking about lung ultrasound. Now, we see tons of kids with respiratory complaints and do tons of chest x-rays on these kids. Yet only a small percentage of them will have anything on chest x-ray, and even a smaller percentage will have a pneumonia found on the x-ray. What if we could use POCUS instead of chest x-ray to diagnose pneumonia? Let's hear Dr. Abo's case and have a discussion on the role of POCUS for the diagnosis of pneumonia in kids. So when it comes to using point-of-care ultrasound in the pediatric emergency department, one of my favorite uses is for lung ultrasound. And we had a really interesting case about two weeks ago. I came into a shift about an hour early just to do some bedside teaching with the fellows for point-of-care ultrasound. And I heard about a case that was eventually going to be signed out to me. And it was a three-year-old little boy who was on antibiotics for pneumonia, but was coming in now with fever, tachypnea, and worsening symptoms. So we said, oh, hey, you know, let's take the ultrasound machine and go in and see what we see. And we were really fascinated by what we found on ultrasound because what we saw was that the right lung was completely loculated. And there really wasn't much in the way of a pleural effusion. There was no aerated lung. It was just all this loculated pneumonia. So a few minutes later, the chest x-ray came back and showed white out of the lung. And so a discussion then arose whether or not to stick a chest tube in this poor child. And then we said, no, don't stick a chest tube in this child because we can see that there's just a loculated pneumonia, no effusion. And so it was just really nice to see how point-of-care ultrasound helped not only avoid an unnecessary chest tube, but also avoided him having to go to CT for a chest uh, CT. And so we avoided all the radiation. That's a great example of how point-of-care ultrasound change your management in a patient with pneumonia. For about 100 years or more, we've been using chest x-ray for pneumonia. When it comes to point-of-care ultrasound for the lung, it's been well established that point-of-care ultrasound is invaluable for pneumothorax, which we talked about in episode 18. Pocus for pneumonia is not quite as clear, though. Which patients do you think benefit most from point-of-care ultrasound for suspected pneumonia, and what does lung POCUS add beyond what a chest x-ray can show us for suspected pneumonia? So that's an excellent question. It's hard to know whether or not ultrasound would be a good screening tool for looking at kids who come in with respiratory symptoms. On the one hand, it could be great because we know that we can sometimes see pneumonia on ultrasound and then chest x-ray is negative. So we have no sense of what the time frame is on that, but we have had situations where we can see something on ultrasound before we can see it on chest x-ray. Right, so you're talking about the early presenter who might have ultrasound evidence of a pneumonia where it hasn't showed up on a chest x-ray yet. We've, we've all seen that where a kid will come in after a few hours of fever and we do a chest x-ray, it's negative, we discharge them home and they come back the next day much sicker with an obvious infiltrate on their chest x-ray. So that's exactly right. So there is some yield in doing those screening chest ultrasounds because you may pick up those patients. On the other hand, when you're doing a screening exam, it's important to be thorough. And so how much time would then be involved to ultrasound the entire chest could be a little bit cumbersome. So it's hard to say that ultrasound should be the only screening tool and 
to eliminate chest x-rays at this point. Certainly in the child like we had, if you're having worsening respiratory symptoms, you're thought to already maybe have a pneumonia, you're looking for effusions, you're looking for larger consolidations or empyema or loculated pneumonias, then there's no question that using ultrasound to see how things are evolving is certainly a useful tool. And in terms of the sensitivities and specificities in general of ultrasound versus chest x-ray for pneumonia? So there'll be two studies up on the website and maybe even more, but two that come to mind are one from JAMA and another from Archive of Pediatric and Adolescent Medicine, both using point-of-care ultrasound in children looking for pneumonias, and those sensitivities and specificities are in the high 80s. So I think that's a good start. There are other guidelines and things that we refer to, which will also be on the website, One is International Evidence-Based Recommendations for Point-of-Care Lung Ultrasound, which came out recently, and that was an international consensus conference through WinFocus that came out with guidelines, and that really touches upon all different uses for point-of-care lung ultrasound, and they did a nice job of looking at different literature, grading that literature, and making these guidelines evidence-based. Do you see in the foreseeable future that point-of-care ultrasound for the lung can decrease the rate of doing chest x-rays. I mean, it's not a huge dose of radiation, but there is a bit of more time involved in sending them for chest x-ray, and there is a bit of radiation dose. Sure. No, I totally agree. And I think in the case that we even had two weeks ago, we probably could have avoided the chest x-ray because we knew on ultrasound before the chest x-ray came back that this child was going to have white out on the chest x-ray, and he most certainly did. So I think it's just right now part of the culture to get x-rays. But knowing that the chest x-ray actually did not give us as much information as the ultrasound certainly reaffirmed the point that you don't always need to do both. And certainly doing the ultrasound and avoiding the chest CT was obviously avoiding an exorbitant amount of radiation to the chest that this child certainly did not need. So you can see that ultrasound can definitely help guide management even where we are now. And I think over time, as we get more data, we'll figure out even more ways to use ultrasound, whether it's ultrasound first or ultrasound as a part of managing a patient, to reduce x-rays and to reduce CT scans of the chest. Okay. So can you just go through for us, step by step, how you'd look for a pneumonia with point-of-care ultrasound on a little kitty who comes in with fever and shortness of breath and cough? Sure. So there's different approaches to how to ultrasound the lung. Some people have broken down the lung into 32 different regions, which I think is a bit cumbersome. Some people just do a diagonal approach where they start up high along the chest towards the sternum and then kind of go diagonally until they get to the to the flank. I think that's one approach. And then another good approach is to break the chest down into different sections. So you have your anterior section, your axillary section, and your posterior section. And in each one of those sections, you look superiorly and inferiorly. And those six views will usually give you a good sense of what's going on in the lung, and you do that on each side. I can add to that and tell you if you're looking at the IVC or you're doing a fast exam, sometimes when you're doing those other views, in addition to the parasternal lung of the heart, you are seeing lung in all those different views. So just to be cognizant of that, that you can sometimes pick up pathology. When you're doing a fast exam, when you look you know, at the right upper quadrant and you lose that mirror image of the liver, you can sometimes see that there's pathology in the lung. So you're looking in your six different quadrants, left and right. What are you actually looking for when it comes to looking for an infiltrate? So when you look at the lung on ultrasound, your classic view is to look between two ribs and to see your pleural line. And normally your pleural line is sliding, it's nice and shimmery, it's bright, it's a horizontal line, 
and there are multiple of those horizontal lines which are referred to as A lines. When you start to lose those artifacts, then you have to worry that something else is going on. Specifically for consolidations, there are three signs. One is referred to as hepatization of the lung, where the lung looks like the liver or another solid organ. Another is shred sign, where the pleural edge looks a little ratty and shredded almost, if you will. And then the last one is tissue sign, again, kind of the same thing as hepatization of the lung, just saying that the lung looks like tissue instead of lung. So pneumonias that are missed on chest x-ray, a lot of them are retrocardiac. If you're looking on point-of-care ultrasound, I understand that you can pick up some of those retrocardiac infiltrates that are hard to find on chest x-ray. Can you just go through for us specifically how you'd look for retrocardiac infiltrate? Sure. So we do a lot of bedside echoes just looking for function and effusions. And recently we had a child who we wanted to look at their heart on ultrasound. And it turned out that the heart was fine, there was no effusion, and behind the heart we could actually see the retrocardiac pneumonia that you're talking about. So for those, I would encourage people to do the parasternal long view of the heart. I think that gives you that best view behind the heart when you're looking for pneumonias. And oftentimes in kids, because their lungs are usually aerated, you get a mirror image of the heart when you're looking. And so if you don't get that mirror image or you start to see beelines or other pathology behind the heart, that can tip you off that something's going on there. But certainly clinically, those are ones that, are, like you said, are tricky and we sometimes miss on chest x-ray. But because a heart is a good window for ultrasound, you can pick them up pretty easily on ultrasound. If there's one pearl and one pitfall you could give us when it comes to lung ultrasound, what would it be? So certainly one of the pitfalls is not looking at enough of the lung and then missing pathology. So I'd encourage people at the very least to always try and scan along those different areas and try and get a good look at the diaphragm so that you can see what's going on at the base of the lung. And in a sense, that's a pearl too, is that you want to be confident about the views that you get. Another pearl that I do like is that when you're doing those right and left upper quadrant views, if you see the spine going above the level of the diaphragm, which people refer to as a spine sign, then that can kind of tip you off that there's pathology in the lung. And that's a great little pearl that has helped me out a lot. We'll have an image of the spine sign on the written summary and blog post. And so along those lines, if you look at the images on the web that go along with this Empyema case, you can see that there is some hepatization of the lung, or what people refer to as tissue sign, where the lung starts to look like tissue. And the only way sometimes that you'll know that you're not actually looking at the mirror image of the liver is to see that there is that spine marching up behind the consolidation. So the question often comes up if you can determine whether or not you're looking at atelectasis or consolidations on lung ultrasound. And the simple answer is no. You really can't always tell. There's no foolproof way of being able to tell, although some people will use bronchograms to help them. So bronchograms are just being able to see air in the bronchograms on ultrasound almost as you can on x-ray. And so if they're static, meaning that they're not moving, people say that can be atelectasis or that can be consolidation. However, if you see dynamic air bronchograms where that you can see that air movement, that that suggests that it's more pneumonia and sort of speaks against atelectasis. So I might add that for the average user, air bronchograms are very easy to see, bright white lines within the tissue sign of the lung. What I think may be harder is to appreciate the dynamic air bronchogram, air moving within the bronchus as opposed to just the lung moving to and fro from a child that may be breathing 40 to 80 times a minute. So I would caution people trying to look too hard for the dynamic air bronchogram and trying to distinguish atelectasis from pneumonia based on their bedside ultrasound and instead use the clinical course as their guide. 
Yeah, just to build off what Adam said, I think we're as we're using this technology more and more in this application, we're finding that there are more and more nuances. Like, for example, there's a suggestion that 1% to 2% of all pediatric pneumonias aren't out at the edges of the, out the lung where we can see them. So our specificity is always going to be 98 because that's just the nature of this pathology. There's some other nuances like we used to think that if we had a bronchiolytic and we heard something that was a trigger for a chest x-ray because maybe that spot was a focal infiltrate. And so now we've started to, to scan there. But there's good anecdotal suggestion that you know what we hear may not be at that location. And so by trying to focus in on a region, we may be missing pneumonias elsewhere. I would just add one more thing from the literature, that when you look at bedside ultrasound, the positive likelihood ratios far outweigh those that you get from your classic physical exam findings. So hearing crackles, hearing decreased lung sounds, when you compare that to the sensitivity, specificity, and positive LRs from bedside sono, you're going to rely on your sonography findings and not your physical exam findings. And I agree with Adam and Jason, there are a lot of nuances to point-of-care lung ultrasound. So seeing the occasional beeline at the base of the lung in healthy kids is not uncommon. So we do so not every beeline is necessarily pathologic and just sort of knowing when it's pathology and when it's not. And when it comes to bronchiolitis, people look for beelines, but also subpleural consolidations and pleural thickening is a little bit subjective at times. And so I think it would be nice if we had a little bit more objective data for lung ultrasound, but... Unfortunately, it's not like that, and so you're relying on your own clinical judgment in that situation to determine whether or not you think there is pleural thickening or these little consolidations, which somebody else might think look completely normal. Sure. Well, that's true for anything in medicine is the way you examine a belly is going to be subjective. The way you interpret a CT scan is going to be subjective. So it's just another data point to add to the clinical picture that might help you along one path or another. Right, and I think that's why lung ultrasound has so many signs, because when you can use these signs, they are more objective, if you will. So whether it's using M-mode for a pneumothorax and getting what people refer to as stratosphere or barcode sign, those signs help you know what you're looking at. And so same thing for the consolidations. If it's a tissue sign or a shred sign, or you see a big pleural fusion, then those things are more concrete. But there are definitely subtleties when you're looking at lung ultrasound, so... People may have challenges when they're initially learning lung ultrasound because it is all based on artifacts, and that's not always intuitive. You're not looking directly at anatomy. But over time, just like everything else with point-of-care ultrasound, it'll become much easier. We just have to remember that we haven't been doing this for very long, and um, you know we're just really starting to hit the capacity where lots of lots of users are looking at pediatric lungs. And so we're, we're really learning this as we go, in a sense. I mean, the, the obvious pneumonias are obvious, but there's lots of subtle things we're starting to learn, and that's what makes this field so exciting. Also along those lines, lending our skills to other departments is also an important thing. I got called down to the NICU one day for a kid who was on an oscillator. They were having a hard time weaning him off of it, and they were concerned in the middle of the night if the kid had a pleural fusion or was it just a, a pneumonia. The radiology resident wasn't uncomfortable doing the ultrasound of the lungs, and they had realized I was there. The residents came and got me, and within a few minutes, we saw that the kid had had an effusion, drained it, and actually got the kid off the oscillator a couple hours later. So having that power in our hands is important to kind of share it with everybody else. Next up is Dr. Sivitz on POCUS for appendicitis. 
So I had this great case the other day. It was a six-year-old child who had come into the ED. It was a weekend. He had a history of vomiting maybe once or twice. Appetite wasn't so good. Uh, the pediatrician, it was a weekend, wasn't in the office, so sent them into the emergency room for evaluation. My resident had gone in already and came back out, presented the case, and had the discharge papers in hand because the kid didn't look all that bad. So I came in, sat down on the bed next to the child, and what I usually do is try to talk to the parent while I'm pressing on the child's belly to get a little bit of distraction. And when I was down in the right lower quadrant, you could see the child wincing. Wasn't screaming in pain, wasn't horribly uncomfortable, but was still wincing reproducibly in the right lower quadrant. So at this point, I excused myself for a second, walked out of the room, grabbed my bedside ultrasound, came back and continued my conversation with mom, but now started scanning the child's belly. And in about 30 seconds, we were able to see a nice big appendicitis. Now, on a normal day with this child who had an equivocal exam, didn't look all that bad, what were we going to do otherwise? Maybe we're going to get a white count, see how that came back. Maybe we're going to get abdominal x-ray, maybe give a little bit of Zofran for the vomiting, see if we could PO challenge in an hour or two. And all these things would have taken up time and would have taken up other resources. 30 seconds after I picked up the ultrasound, I knew what I was doing with this child. I knew what my disposition was going to be. We made our consultation calls, and I was already moving on to my next five or six patients. Now, you might be thinking, wow, that was an amazing case. But ultrasound for appendicitis sounds like it's pretty hard. And even when it's done in the radiology department, the sensitivity isn't that great. So you might need more convincing to use POCUS to diagnose appendicitis. Let's get into the controversy. When it comes to appendicitis, there is a wide variation in practice, which we discussed in detail with Anna Jarvis and Stephen Friedman in episode 19. However, it's now pretty well established that based on national guidelines, that ultrasound should be the first line imaging modality of choice since it has relatively high sensitivity and specificity depending on the ultrasonographer's technical skill, interpretation experience, patient cooperation, patient girth, and whether or not the patient is given adequate anxiolytics and analgesics prior to performing the ultrasound. POCUS for appendicitis can be very challenging, and many docs, even some teachers of POCUS, do not recommend that it should be used by ED docs to rule in or out appendicitis. Some argue that POCUS should be used in a binary way only. Can we rule in or rule out with near 100% certainty, like in the case of a AAA, for example? A recent study out of academic emergency medicine from this year showed pretty good specificities but not so good sensitivities for POCUS for appendicitis in children, suggesting that POCUS is a good screening test to rule in appendicitis, but perhaps not such a good rule-out test. Dr. Sivitz, how does ED POCUS for appendicitis compare to ultrasound done in the radiology department in terms of accuracy, and how do you see POCUS being used in the workup of the child who presents with belly pain? So from our own study at our institution over the past three years, we were actually able to establish a sensitivity of about 88% in the bedside scans that we were doing with a specificity around 93%. And this was including some novice sonographers as well as more experienced sonographers. I would say that we have the ability to use bedside ultrasound and we have the ability to do it while we're seeing the patient initially before we need to do any labs, before we need to do any imaging. And if we can find a positive appendicitis, 
there should be no reason why we can't call surgery, we can't let radiology know at least where we found it, and get the ball rolling for admission, giving appropriate pain medication or antibiotics as necessary. In addition, in a child who were able to see a normal-appearing appendix, and by that we're able to see a tubular non-compressible structure less than 6 millimeters in outer wall diameter and able to visualize it out to the tip of the appendix to its blind end, there's no reason for us to expect any different result from radiology when they go for their confirmatory scan. Okay, so could you just run through for us the low-risk patient, the moderate-risk patient, and the high-risk patient that presents with belly pain in terms of appendicitis and how you would deal with each of those patients when it comes to point-of-care ultrasound? Sure. So first and foremost, any patient who comes in with right lower quadrant pain automatically meets some threshold for a risk for appendicitis. So for us, that means that they're going to get a bedside ultrasound. From our own study of 240 patients, we divided them up into pretest probabilities and what we found was that in every decile of pretest probability, with the exception of the first from 0 to 10% pretest probability for appendicitis, we had cases of appendicitis. So pretest probability is as low as 15%, 25%, 30%. We were still finding appendicitis. Similarly, in the high risk patients, where the clinician thought 90% or better, 95% or better, that this patient absolutely had appendicitis. We found normal appendices, and the child went home that day without any problems. So we use bedside ultrasound on every patient, regardless of their clinical suspicion. Now, I think where we can divide up our patients is when we have the equivocal ultrasound. So if we have a very high-risk patient and we are not visualizing the appendix, but maybe we're seeing some signs uh, inflammation within the abdomen, we're seeing a lot of free fluid or inflammatory changes, then that may be a case of ruptured appendicitis, and because of the amount of inflammation, we just can't see it. Or maybe it's retrocecal or pelvic, and we can't see it. That's going to be a child that we move on to more formal radiologic studies. The low-risk patient, where you know they may come in with very light amount of pain, but otherwise are looking well, and we have an equivocal study, but we're not seeing any secondary signs of inflammation, no free fluid, but we don't see the appendix, that may be somebody that we're going to send home. And the radiology literature confirms both of those modalities as being appropriate. Where I think ultrasound helps is those medium-risk patients because maybe their labs are not going to be so overwhelming, maybe their exam is not going to be underwhelming, overwhelming, and we have to decide how, what's going to be the next step? Should we call surgery right away? Are we going to move them to CT right away because of their body habitus? Where sending them to ultrasound may just be a waste of time based on what we see. So I believe that we have a role for ultrasound with high, medium, and low-risk patients. Now you had mentioned sensitivities as high as 88% in the study that you did at your shop. There is another recent article from Academic Emergency Medicine called The Effect of Point-of-Care Ultrasound on Emergency Department Length of Stay and CT Utilization in Children with Suspected Appendicitis. And that was a study with about 150 patients where they did show a, a decreased mean ED length of stay and a decreased CT rate, but their sensitivities were in the 60s. 
how do you explain these differences in sensitivities? And you know, surely if, if it is in the 60s, you're going to be hard-pressed to rule out, based on your bedside, ultrasound. But if you're up, like you guys are at your shop, near 90, then you might be more comfortable ruling out. So I think this is one of the most important things about bedside sonography, and it doesn't matter whether you're an ED physician doing it or you're a radiology tech doing it or you're a surgeon doing it. There's operator dependence and there's patient variability. So at different centers, there may be different scanning techniques. They may be using different equipment and therefore getting different sensitivities and specificities. We see that in the ED literature where you have studies that show similar results to this one with sensitivities around 60% and specificities up in the 80s and 90s. But you also have other ED literature that has results similar to our own. In the radiology literature from pediatric centers, you can see sensitivities that are also as low as 60%, but can also go up to 90%. And this depends on when patients present. It may depend on the body habitus. But again, it also depends on the operator. I don't think Dr. Simmons is going to say this, but he, him and his group really set a high bar. I mean, and they don't set a bar that's not achievable. But clearly the culture that he's fostered with his surgeons, with his radiologists, the training program he has, speaks to what's what you can do with this technology if you have the systems in place. So I think those high sensitivities are a testament to the systems and training that he has, and that's reflected in that work. So Dr. Sivitz, that gives our listeners a really good idea of when POCUS can be helpful in appendicitis. Can you go through for us the technique of how you'd look for appendicitis on bedside ultrasound? Sure. There are really two ways that we use ultrasound to look for appendicitis. And the first and easiest is going to be in the adolescent patient who can really localize well where his pain is and use one finger to point exactly on the belly where that is. And the simplest way to look in this case is to just put your probe right where that patient is pointing. And a lot of times you may find it right there within a couple of seconds. Unfortunately, in younger patients or maybe when there's more diffuse pain or early when it's not well localized, you're going to have to have a specific scanning technique. And the way that we train our fellows, it's really not to identify just the appendix, but it's really doing bowel sonography. So our technique involves identifying the ascending colon in the lateral right side of the abdomen, moving down the lateral wall to make sure we are not missing a lateral or retrocecal appendix, and then move to the medial side of the cecum and ascending colon, because the medial side is where the appendix is usually going to come off. And that's what we're looking for, is the appendix coming off of the cecum. Once we find it, you need to trace the appendix all the way to its blind end. One of the major pitfalls of looking for appendicitis is misidentifying the terminal ilium or another small bowel structure as the appendix. Any bowel can be compressed into an ovoid form, but you need to make sure that it is a tubular, non-compressible structure. I think one of the important things to, um, to consider when doing an uh, appendicitis ultrasound is the fact that you need surgical buy-in for this, in so much of the fact that if you do the scan and you have a positive and you show your surgeon, it may not pass his or her so what test because they may not, may not know your skills, may not trust your ultrasound, and may require form, formal imaging, be it an ultrasound or a CAT scan or whatever. It's, it's hard to not get discouraged by that, and the way you kind of get past that, I think, and I know you, we've all been there, we've all done this, is just to keep on scanning, keep on scanning, keep on finding those positive appies. And once you find more and more and more and prove to your surgical team, 
that you could actually do this and this is one of the applications that is helpful in, in POCUS, then you'll get the buy-in from them. The problem after that, though, is you're only as good as your last scan. It's just like every Adam Sandler movie. If it's terrible, the last one, they're going to judge it based on that. So if you make a mistake, if you misidentify the appendix or something else and they go to the OR, it may come back to bite you. But you still have to kind of be steadfast, keep scanning, and actually look for those appendix. Do you guys ever get the surgeon right at the bedside and show them the uh, inflamed appendix right there? And is that a strategy you use to convince them? It, it, it depends. I mean, in my shop, we have three surgeons now, and occasionally they'll, they'll kind of float down to the, to the ED looking for stuff before, the, before they leave or right before they, uh, they head to work. And it's happened before that they're at the bedside while we're doing a, a scan, and they can actually see the appendix with us. And for them, that's good enough. They, it, kids' classic examination – I mean, I've gotten kids to the OR almost before they registered, which is a nice thing, and when, when all the stars align. I think the best way to get the surgeons to buy in is to have that case that comes in at 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and everybody is ready to get home, and you can give them that call before they get in the car or before they're sitting down to dinner with their family. If you can tell them early, hey, I've got a positive case, and they can get them to the OR, and then go home and not have to worry about that child, then they'll listen to you the next time that you call because they have some faith in you. Group hugs with surgeons. Sounds good. (laughs) Depends on the surgeon. (laughs) Some people find looking for the appendix a little bit intimidating, so I would just encourage people to start looking and getting used to looking for a normal appendix, getting used to looking for an abnormal appendix, so that over time their skills get better. And so up front, maybe they won't use what they find for medical decision-making, but over time they'll be more confident in their own skills. But certainly to be intimidated and not look at all could be detrimental. So at least to start looking and getting used to looking at the bowel is a good thing. You don't find 100% of the appendixes you don't look for. So this is right, scanning is the key. Scanning is not going to hurt anything. Amen, brother. I see my light come shining From the west down to the east Any day now Any day now I shall be released And last but not least, we have Dr. Arroyo on POCUS for intussusception. So my case involves my favorite um, aspect of point of care ultrasound, and that's intussusception. For some reason, in my hospital, we have lots of cases of interception. I don't know if it's in the water or Brooklyn or anything else, but we see a ton of interception. And our point of care, ultrasound skills have really come into significant play when it comes to diagnosing these children. Because I think it's one of the applications that can really make, make or break it when it comes to getting these kids to where they need to be as fast as possible. Because I could diagnose it downstairs in ED, bring the child up to radiology immediately, and do a barium from there, and it's the wait time is almost almost negligible when it comes to that. So my case involves, it was probably 5 o'clock in the morning, and a patient rolls in, and it was a patient I had seen a couple of weeks beforehand, and I recognized them. And about two weeks before that, I had diagnosed him with an intussusception. He was about a four or five-year-old. They had a hard time reducing it in radiology, so he had went to the OR to get it uh, reduced laparoscopically. Mom comes in, sees me, has a look in her eyes like it's happening again. And sure enough, it was happening again. The child was having abdominal pain, looked lethargic, and was, was pretty ill-appearing when, when he presented. So grabbed my resident, grabbed my ultrasound machine. We rolled to the bedside of the child, and 
expecting completely to find an interception because the kid had one previously, and we were kind of surprised as to what we found. What we saw when we looked inside was the kid had a significant amount of ascites, and that was kind of scattered all over the place, Morrison's pouch by the bladder. And then he had a large amount of bowel that looked really diseased. It was shaggy appearing, that had some to and fro movement, you know, typical of small bowel obstruction. And just not a uh, not a normal looking bowel when you look inside there. And seeing that and not seeing what we expected to see, which is the interception, was a little a little more concerning for us, since the the child did look pretty ill. Immediately we moved to speak to the surgery attending, who luckily enough at six o'clock in the morning was driving on her way to the other hospital she works at to round there first. I told her the situation. She she had actually remembered the kid from previously when they reduced the interception. And she was a little less concerned than we were on the ultrasound because I think that she probably didn't recognize the utility of, of bedside ultrasound and, and the power that it has in, in people's hands who are, who, who are trained well. So she was initially intending to drive to the other hospital to see patients there first and then come to our hospital. But we convinced her to come to our hospital first, take care of this child. And luckily enough, she did, came in and wound up taking the kid to the OR based on ultrasound by radiology and then took off about 20 cms of this kid's bowel that just had gotten necrotic because it wrapped around an adhesion he had from the previous surgery. And the kid wind up um, with a colostomy bag for a little while. But it was, uh, for us, a case in, I mean, time, for us, time was gut at that point. And getting that kid to the OR as fast as possible, I think, POCUS was the catalyst for that for this child. And this kid could easily sat for two, three hours waiting for an abdominal ultrasound from radiology. At that point, it was a resident who may have been busy with other things and may have gotten bounced back. And I could have easily seen it at, at our shop, this, this waiting two or three hours before it actually got done, and this kid getting worse and worse and sicker and sicker and more and more septic and potentially dying from this. So for me, there's no better case of, of pocus in action than, than that one for me. And I think the other highlight important thing is you may not find things that you're looking for, but recognizing things that are there is the, is the important thing too. Knowing what, what you're looking at when things don't make sense or looking for something else when you don't see the thing that you're looking for I think is also so a skill that we learn, and it takes a while to learn because you have to know, see a lot of normal to know what abnormal looks like. So just looking a little bit deeper and making sure that you, you know, your eyes are focused uh, you know, on, on those small little trees that are inside that forest is, an, I think, an important thing as well. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about intussusception itself. Where I work at North York General, for every patient that we suspect the possibility of intussusception in after 8 p.m. at night, we have to transfer the child to the pediatric emergency department in the middle of the night for an ultrasound in their radiology department, which causes major delays in diagnosis and treatment. And we end up sending lots of kids who don't have intussusception or any other pathology for that matter. How can POCUS improve patient care when it comes to patients who we suspect might have intussusception? I think POCUS for interception is probably one of the best and quickest and easiest scans to learn, even for the novice sonographers. And Dr. Sivitz decided to dedicate part of his life to doing appendicitis, which is a much more robust and difficult exam. And I applaud him a lot for that. But I'm a simple guy. I like simple things. Interception is very easy to do. And it's easy to do from the standpoint that if once you plop that probe down, if it's there, you're probably going to see it. You want to fish with a fish are. So in kids who are in the classic age range, six months to six years, you want to look in the right upper quadrant, right lower quadrant. If you focus your scan there, you'll probably pick up 90 
90 something percent of interceptions in the classic interceptions in kids. We've seen them elsewhere. They may not be iliocolic, they may be small mouth, small bowel, and those are sometimes difficult to know what to do with those depending on how big they are because they may reduce, they may re- reduce spontaneously, they may reoccur. So we're still kind of working out the data and working out the protocol as to what to do with those kids. But for the most part, community physicians can easily pick this up. It's a simple thing. It may save a transfer fee as well. It may save a lot, you know, a lot of time, a lot of money between ambulance fees and, and other hospital fees and missions. It's a super easy study to do. There's a few different protocols out there that, that you could look at, but the one that I like the most is just starting again in the right upper quadrant with the linear probe. Your depth should be about six to eight centimeters. Scanning in, the, in that right upper quadrant transversely, looking at the bowel, making sure you see, see all the bowel there, and then flipping your probe longitudinally and then scanning back and forth from that side there. So once you get a good section, confident that you saw a, 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 good, a good portion of the bowel in that section, move to the next section. Move to the right lower quadrant, do the same thing, transverse longitudinal. Move to the left lower quadrant, come back up to the left, left upper quadrant, same thing, back and forth scanning. The kid's a little bit larger, you, you can go into the epigastrium and the suprapubic area and try to look above the bladder and look below the, the rib cage to see if you can get it, if it's potentially in, in, um, in that area. And then for me, I've, I've seen one or two interceptions in the flanks in kids who are classic. So I like to look below the level of the kidney in the, in the paracolic gutter, right where the psoas muscle is, in the flanks, almost like a fast exam view, but just a little bit lower than that, just to see if you see anything inside there. For me, that's a complete exam. You've seen everything you need to see inside there if you've pushed down enough with graded compression to try to push that gas out of the way. So Dr. Arroyo, when you're looking for intussusception, what exactly does it look like? We'll have some images up on the on the blog post, but what would make you sure that that's an intussusception you're looking at? Sure. So pretty much everything in pediatric POCUS is going to be the target lesion. Uh, intussusception is a target lesion. So is appendicitis when you see it on transverse, and it's also pyloric stenosis. This is where Adam and I geek out and do our little Star Wars reference about staying on target. What it looks like is basically a ring in a ring. Sometimes it has two rings, sometimes it has multiple rings, depending on how big it is. And that's just from the, the bowel sticking into itself. That's the classic transverse view when, uh, when, when you see an interception. The longitudinal view looks a little different. It may look like a sandwich which, with layers of bread and or other things stacked on top of each other. And that's just, again, the, uh, the bowel pushed inside of itself. It should be uh, above two centimeters to be truly clinically significant. And that's kind of anecdotal data that we've seen usually less than two centimeters. Sometimes they spontaneously reduce. Sometimes they come back. We've had a lot of cases, I know probably everybody at this table could speak to that, of a kid who we've done an ultrasound off interception, see it positive in the ED because they're symptomatic. They go upstairs to get one done, and then it's negative because the kid's bouncing around unhappy. And it's just a spontaneous reduction, and it's kind of hard to know what, what to do with those kids right now at this point. Okay, and so if there are any significant pitfalls with this exam, what would they be? I think the biggest pitfall is usually the kids we get for interception are in the less than one year range around there. Those are the kids who, who traditionally look at the numbers get it. And those kids usually are not very compliant with this exam. So they're usually in pain in general because they have an interception or they're lethargic. If you can get them in that period, it's great. But one of the things that I like to do that I know a few of us employ is giving them a little bit of light sedation, a little intranasal fentanyl, intranasal ketamine, midazolam, whichever, because it winds up giving you a better scan. And if you're able to actually see what you need to see, it's going to get you a lot further. Because what happens is, is that you put the probe on the kid, you see a lot of gas. And the way we get rid of gas is by pushing down. The more you push down, the more pain they're in. The more pain they're in, the more they cry. The more they cry, the more they swallow air. The more they swallow air, the more they have gas. Then the more you push down. So you wind up coming into this negative feedback loop with them where 
the things you're trying to do are exactly opposite of the things they're trying to do. So if you could get past that, give them a little sedation, you know, don't completely snow them, but give them enough to make them a little comfortable, a little happy. Mom's happy, the baby's happy, and then you can get your scan done pretty expeditiously. And in the skilled hand, you could probably push through an interception scan and two or three minutes. It's, it's a pretty easy scan. I agree with Alex, and I think for both appendicitis and intussusception, even if people are nervous about the idea of sedation, although I think it's reasonable to do and completely safe, even just giving a good dose of pain medication and giving an appropriate dose of morphine also can really be helpful in those situations. And here's another pitfall from Dr. Arroyo. So I think sometimes when we do ultrasound, we get excited about finding a positive finding, and we don't focus to see if maybe that positive finding is, is not what we're looking for. So always, you know, my fellowship director told me, always looking at a, anything pathologic, you want to see it in two different planes. So you want to see it in the transverse plane. You want to see it in the longitudinal plane. I had a kid the other day who came in as a transport for me from a different hospital for a positive intussusception. It was a one-month-old who was crying, constipated. kid looked great when I saw her. Before I opened up the images, I did my own bedside ultrasound and and ran into what they saw, which was definitely not an interception. So in the right lower quadrant, she had a pretty prominent psoas muscle. In the middle of that psoas muscle was this kind of hyper-echoic, very bright white bundle of muscle that was in, that was in the center of it. That, on transverse view, looked exactly like an interception. It had similar features, the, the ring on a ring, which we look for, the, 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 uh, the target lesion. But if you turn the probe longitudinally and follow that muscle out, you can completely see it was a psoas muscle and it reached into the pelvis. So measuring things, looking at things in two different planes is an important thing to do. And it, it's, it should be done for pretty much everything we see for the appendix as well. In the adult literature, looking at triple A's in two different planes is also important. We had a recent case in our, in our ED where an adult provider saw a patient, 90-year-old back pain, hypotensive, did an ultrasound, saw what he thought was a triple A because it was a large mass inside the abdomen, didn't turn the probe longitudinally, and it wound up becoming the bladder when you actually look at it from there. So we activated the vascular team for, for that, and unfortunately didn't, didn't come out looking so well. So looking at things in two different planes is an important thing. So Dr. Arroyo, you were mentioning that compared to appendicitis, intussusception is much easier to find. What does the literature say about the accuracy of POCUS for intussusception? So there's a study published a couple of years ago by Riera out of um, Yale, they looked at ultrasound done by PEMPOCUS providers versus radiology. Their sensitivity was 85% and their specificity was 97%. I myself did a study with one of my fellows looking at the same exact thing, just pitting us against radiology to see if numbers are similar. And our, actually, our sensitivity specificity was a little bit better than the, 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 re, uh, the RIERA study. We had nine positives out of 100 patients, and the two, the two that we disagreed on, one was we saw a positive down in the ED, and they, saw a ne- and they saw a negative ultrasound. The kid was better in between that. I had the ultrasound read by an outside radiologist, which he, he confirmed that it was intussusception. And then the other one was we, we had a negative, they had a positive, but they went, when they went to barium to reduce it, the interception wasn't there. So again, it, probably re- it was in and out of reduction. So if you exclude those two, it was 100% agreement between both. When you think about the potential for someone that's in a resource-limited area or a rural setting where a transfer is going to be needed. I mean, this is critical information. And when we have a group of emergency physicians now that are using point-of-care ultrasound for other applications, this is an application that can be easily added into their skill set. One thing I just want to add to the evaluation for interception is that really what we're doing here is bowel sonography. And again, the more you look at the bowel, the more that you can recognize the target sign of interception, the target sign of appendicitis, 
But as Alex's case illustrated, you can identify normal bowel and abnormal bowel. And you may not know what you're looking at, but you'll be able to recognize that something is just not right that's going on, and that may lead you to the correct diagnosis where you wouldn't have otherwise suspected it. So in those kids where you're thinking maybe gastro, but you're not quite sure, and we see tons of these kids, do you find, you know, just sticking that ultrasound probe on, sometimes they'll get surprised that there'll just be some abnormality, like you said, you're not sure what it is, and then you might, they might end up with some sort of formal imaging, or you might find it on POCUS yourself that actually changes management. So as clinicians, when we approach a patient who has abdominal pain, I think we go through an algorithm in our own minds of what we're focused on. And then I think ultrasound can then help narrow it down. So if someone has right upper quadrant pain, depending on their age, we may be looking for antisusception or we may be looking for gallstones. Or if we're concerned about right lower quadrant pain, you may be looking at the appendix but come across an ovarian torsion, if you will. So I think a lot of times we go through an algorithm that helps us narrow down our differential and then certainly ultrasound can just take that one step further and give us more insightful and, you know, no pun intended, but you're looking inside, so you're getting more information than you would just based on your own clinical exam. And maybe one thing also that we don't appreciate as much, but from the, the parent's side of the view, is that being able to put the probe on your child's belly and being able to be reassured that nothing bad is going on probably leads to great patient satisfaction. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. Awesome. And this month's quote of the month is from John Lubbock. What we do see depends mainly on what we look for. In the same field, the farmer will notice the crop, the geologists, the fossils, botanists, the flowers, artists, the coloring, sportsmen, the cover for the game. Though we may all look at the same things, it doesn't follow that we should see them. We've got a great lineup coming up the next few months on EM Cases. I'm going to be interviewing the world's greatest emergency medicine researcher, Ian Steele, in Ottawa this fall. I'm going to be interviewing one of the greatest clinical care educators in the world, Dr. Scott Weingart, at the ASEP conference in Chicago in October. We're going to have our second episode on occult ortho injuries, as well as more pediatrics. I've got a couple of emails from listeners who have been having trouble getting automatic podcast downloads to their iPhones. There's really just three steps in the process. One, you got to make sure that you're logged into the website. Two, you got to make sure that you have a podcast app. The Apple podcast app is a simple, easy one that you can download from the Apple store. And then three is click on the podcast setup button on the homepage, which takes you to a page where you just have to click on the little rectangle that says setup. If you have any problems, please don't hesitate to email me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. Lastly, I just want to announce that the first ever Journal Jam podcast will be released soon, and I'm really excited about this one. This is the podcast that's a collaboration between myself and Michelle Lynn from Academic Life in Emergency Medicine, where we have the lead authors of key articles in emergency medicine interviewed with crowdsourced opinions from around the world through social media like Twitter and the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website. And that's all going to be turned into a podcast where myself and my friend Teresa Chen from McMaster, who's one of the associate editors at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, will discuss and review the key take-home points. 
Now, in terms of the topic of the first Journal Jam, I'm really excited because we're going to be interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Klein, one of the world's leading researchers in thromboembolic disease on age-adjusted D-dimer. This may be something that will change our practice in the ever-so-controversial use of D-dimer and thromboembolic disease in the emergency department. All right, so that about wraps it up. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take it easy.